Everybody and welcome back to the Palace of Glittering Delights. I am Andrew Leyland. Sorry, I was just closing the door there. In the history of television, there has always been one last-ditch effort for programmes that are not performing as well as the producers would hope, or have maybe seen better days to improve their fortunes. Mm. This final stab at taking a show that may have been once popular, or that the network or studio have a vested interest in, and giving it another try has really, if ever, worked, but that never seems to stop them from giving it a go. I am, of course, referring to the revamp. Now, I need to be clear here. I'm not talking about introducing a new character or simply changing the locale of a show. TJ Hooker, Jake and the Fat Man and Leverage all changed locations, but the shows themselves remained relatively unchanged. What I'm talking about is completely revamping the show, changing the setup, and maybe even changing the reason for the show's very existence. Now, it can be argued that some programmes change their premise organically as they go along. Buffy the Vampire Slayer outgrew its premise of high school is hell with the actors ageing. It was already stretching credibility that actress Charisma Carpenter was in high school anyway, so moving the characters to college must have seemed like a good idea at the time, and Buffy did eventually adapt to accommodate. Friends changed as it matured, and it can be argued that Doctor Who altered its premise fairly early on from being that of a historical drama series into more science fiction, but some argue that Doctor Who changes every time the lead actor does. Other times, the ageing of actors, or changing of actors, cause the producers to make a completely different show, like Saved by the Bell, The College Years, or Galactica 1980. But some programmes, to stave off cancellation, do more than adapt slowly. They change radically overnight, oftentimes barely resembling their original incarnation. Here are six of my favourites. One way the viewer can be informed that a show has undergone a radical overhaul is the opening titles. A complete change of theme tune, or, if the theme is distinctly memorable, a completely new arrangement normally greets the viewers when they tune in. This isn't a hard and fast rule, though. Starsky and Hutch had three different theme tunes over its four-season run, with the final season being a new arrangement of the season two theme, Tom Scott's Gotcha. Lost in Space also had two different theme songs without messing with the show itself, and Quantum Leap had two completely different sets of credits and a different arrangement, although the show remained mostly the same. However, a new arrangement and a completely different title sequence normally means trouble, and that is what greeted viewers of the A-Team as it entered its fifth season. It was looking increasingly unlikely that the A-Team would even get a fifth season. Ratings had slid in the fourth and the producers had thought the show a goner, as evinced by the season four finale, The Sound of Thunder. Tonally completely different from the episodes that preceded it, this segment is an almost straight-up action drama instead of the usual comedy and cartoon-esque hijinks that normally typified an average episode of the show. In this segment, the team are hired by an American general, Bull Fulbright, to return to Vietnam to rescue his daughter, a daughter until recently he didn't know he had. Cue some flashbacks to Nam and a relatively morose team confronted with their memories of that war and what it meant to them, plus the only on-screen shooting and death in A-Team history, and you have an atypical episode. Not 
as atypical as the fifth season, though. Gone is the opening saga cell, informing us of the team and its purpose. In its place, a staccato and synthesised drumbeat depicting the A-team in a courtroom and standing trial, before the gunshots burst forth to reveal the title logo and background images of the team breaking out of court. The familiar theme then kicks in, but with a more 80s synth feel and now in stereo. Clips from the show accompany the actors' credits, George Peppard, Dirk Benedict and Dwight Schultz, all present and accounted for. But then, in a total surprise, there is a new bridge added and a new character, Eddie Velez as Frankie Santana, before Mr. T hurls a table over and dons a fedora for his credit. But another surprise awaits, as former man from Uncle Robert Vaughan pops up as Hunt Stockwell. The sequence ends with the requisite shots of helicopters exploding and cars turning over, but the impression is akin to having had one's face slapped with a wet fish. What the hell? Here's the audio. takes place over the first three episodes of the season, either given three different titles, Dishpan Man, Trial by Fire and Firing Line, or grouped together under the umbrella title, The Court Martial, parts one through three. Hannibal Smith is kidnapped by General Stockwell, who blackmails the A-team into rescuing a group of hostages, one of which, Colonel Curtis, can prove the team not guilty of the crime they are on the run for. It all goes south, and the team are captured and tried for robbing a bank in Hanoi. It turns out the opening credits of the show has lied to the viewers for the past four years, and the A-team did in fact actually commit the crime they were wanted for. But crucially, they did it under orders and off book. The man who gave them the order, Colonel Morrison, was killed, and the team, unable to prove otherwise, escaped to the Los Angeles underground. Hannibal, Face and B.A. are found guilty and sentenced to execution. Murdoch and new team member, special effects man Frankie Santana, try to free the team and to do this they coerce General Stockwell into helping. The team are rescued, but in exchange for his aid, Stockwell now wants the team to work for him, performing off-book black ops, and in return, after a certain unspecified time, he will obtain a pardon for them all. B 
basically, this format change turns the A-Team into a hybrid of 70s Western alias Smith & Jones and Mission Impossible. Howling Mad Murdoch is also declared sane and released from the Veterans Hospital, another change to the central premise of the show. With Murdoch not an official team member, he's not part of Stockwell's offer, and a lot of humour was derived from Murdoch having to find a job. The fifth season of The A-Team therefore feels like an entirely different show, and opinion varies on whether this is a bad thing. Personally, I think the fifth season had a number of good episodes, but Peppard and T's strained working relationship meant that B.A. had a significantly reduced screen time, and it was up to Schultz and Benedict to carry the show more often. Despite the changes, the revamp didn't catch on and the series was cancelled. To give the show some closure, there are some hastily added lines of dialogue to the final episode filmed, The Grey Team, to explain the pardon is coming through and the team will simply go back to helping people. This always seemed a little bit odd, as previously the team didn't seem to care that they were wanted for a crime they didn't commit. They knew they were innocent, and that was good enough for them. The next show I will be looking at is Angel, spin-off from Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it's kind of a loose revamp, given that the show essentially changed every single season like some small child on a sugar high. The first season was essentially a detective show. We help the hopeless, as Cordelia Chase would have it. But, after being informed that there was already a show with that premise, Forever Night, the producers of Angel changed the home base and thrust of the show for season two. No longer in Angel's offices, Team Angel moved to a swanky old hotel, and instead the show focused more on the regular characters rather than random cases. The season closed with an off-concept three-parter set in another dimension, notable for introducing a new character, Fred, played by Amy Acker, and Charisma Carpenter dressing like DJ Thoris. Season three again changed its focus, centering around the weird stuff that happens in LA generally, and season four played out over a very small span of time and featured yet another apocalypse. Maybe Buffy wasn't having one that year. All of these changes felt organic to the show, however, and viewers may not have even noticed the format changing under their feet. Season 5 was different. Gone was the hotel, and even the pretense of helping people in need, and in was Team Angel fighting to break the system from within. Angel, having successfully defeated longtime adversary evil law firm Wolfram and Hart, took over the company. Now ensconced in the very system they wanted to destroy, our heroes wonder if they have become that which they hate. As with the A-Team, a fifth season for Angel looked unlikely. The show had never been a massive success, unlike Buffy, but was consistently the better show. However, when Buffy moved networks, the writing looked like it was on the wall for Angel, but despite that, it was picked up for season four. However, the season was a tumultuous one. Charisma Carpenter was allegedly having some personal difficulties. The storylines were darker than ever, and even the normally ebullient David Boreanaz, a man who often looks like he can't believe his own look, was feeling the strain, and has stated that had the show been cancelled at the end of season four, he wouldn't have lost any sleep over it. A fifth season was not, therefore, a sure thing, but with Buffy now concluded, the WB picked the series up for a fifth season with few caveats. Apparently they wanted a character from Buffy to move over to Angel, presumably helped with the ratings. They favoured Alison Hannigan's character Willow Rosenberg. Hannigan, however, was not willing to commit to another series at the time, despite her husband Alexis Denisoff being a regular on Angel. Personally, I think Willow was too similar to Fred, but it was all moot anyway when it was announced that fan-favourite character Spike, played by James Masters, would join the cast. This was a much better fit. Spike had a history with Angel, and the fact that they hated each other, having both slept with Buffy, would add some conflict. The 
casting was only hindered by one small problem. In the final episode of Buffy, Spike was killed. Another request from the WB was that the show lighten up a smidge. Season 5 of Angel kicked off with an episode entitled Conviction, written and directed by Joss Whedon. There are no sweeping changes to the theme by Darling Violetta, no radical overhaul of the credit sequence apart from adding masters to the mix and the annual updating of actors' images. In fact, the show goes out of its way to suggest it's all business as usual. Unlike most revamps, Angel made this work, and Season 5 is a step up from some of the more questionable storytelling decisions made in Seasons 3 and 4. Masters and the new format seems to have invigorated the show, and a number of episodes from this season are the finest of the series. Even Borianaz, who was growing dissatisfied, said that Season 5 was one of his favourites to work on, and plans were underway for what would happen in Season 6. Sadly, just after Angel celebrated its 100th episode, the WB cancelled the series. As such, it ends on a partial cliffhanger, although the character of Angel has since resurfaced in Dark Horse comics. The next pick, Erwolf, was Donald P. Belisario's 80s action classic that wasn't Magnum P.I. Despite running for barely half of Magnum's total, Erwolf has proved to be distinctly memorable, largely due to two things, the magnificent theme tune and the titular chopper. Erwolf was a state-of-the-art, ultra-high-tech military helicopter partially designed by Andy Probert, who worked on the various add-ons and the command centre. Erwolf was a sleek-looking machine that, when its pilot, the wonderfully monikered Stringfellow Hawk, pressed a few buttons, suddenly became the most advanced weapon system in the Earth today. Capable of disengaging the rotors, and after kicking in the turbos, Erwolf could exceed Mach 1, and its impressive armoury, all discreetly hidden, was enough to level a small country, something Hawk did on a semi-weekly basis. The show's premise was that Erwolf has been stolen by its designer, Charles Moffat, played by a wonderfully slimy David Hemmings, and Hawk, squint-eyed minimalist Jan Michael Vincent, was tasked with retrieving it by Archangel, portrayed by Alex Cord. Hawk was aided by the man that raised him after his parents' death, Dominic Santini, portrayed extravagantly by Ernest Borgnine. Hawk succeeds, but hides Erwolf out in a hollowed-out boot in the Valley of the Gods. Well, you'll never find it, he tells Archangel, until Archangel's shadowy CIA-esque company, the firm, can find his brother Sinjin Hawk, who's MIA in Vietnam. For the first season, the show was a political spy espionage drama, and one of the finest of the era. The aerial photography was especially good, and the crisp editing, decent plots and characters, and magnificent synth soundtrack by Sylvester Leve made for an entertaining hour. In fact, with its hidden lure, high-tech super vehicle, flight suit costumes, and secret identity shenanigans, Erwolf was the closest thing to a Marvel comic TV had in the 1980s. The second and third seasons had the premise toned down so that Erwolf was less political and it became another A-team clone, albeit with a higher body count. Belisario left after the second season and Jan Michael Vincent's personal problems started affecting the production of an already expensive show, rumoured to be around $900,000 per episode. With the show not returning high viewing figures, network CBS cancelled the series after three seasons and 55 episodes. However, 55 episodes is not enough segments for a lucrative syndication deal, and Universal Pictures wanted to recoup their losses. The USA Network picked the series up and ordered a fourth season to pump up the numbers. Production moved to Canada and an all-new cast was employed. 
As with the 18, the opening theme was rearranged and newly cut credits were created. Gone are the slick, fast-cut, almost movie-like footage from the original, and in a murky video of the new actors intercut with stock footage from the old show, and truly awful superimposed titles looking like a bad 80s video game. Here's the audio. episode of the fourth season of Black Jack features a guest appearance by Jan Michael Vincent, but he's the only original actor to appear. Dominic's body double is killed off in some badly cut stock footage in an explosion that also seriously injures Hawk, and Sinjin, now played by Barry Van Dyke, is found alive and well. To be fair, the episode isn't awful if one ignores that A. Every single piece of footage of the chopper is stock. B. That the episode gives a completely different account of how Sinjin became MIA. C. That Sylvester Levey's magnificent score has been replaced by a generic Canadian action score to the point where, when the theme kicks in, it seems out of place. And D. The fact that in the original only Hawk could fly Erwolf. This has been discarded so that any numpty with a student's pilot certificate can apparently fly her. Also, exactly how Sinjin knows about Erwolf, given he's been in Nam for nearly 15 years, is also a head-scratcher. If you can ignore all of that, and I grant you it is a lot to have to ignore, the episode gives a nice wrap-up to String's story and leaves his fate ambiguous. No mention is made of series regular character Caitlin O'Shaughnessy. Archangel has been moved to the Middle East suddenly. And again, no mention is made of Sinjin's Vietnamese son, who was in a couple of episodes of season three. And the ending is especially odd. New CIA contact Jason Locke, after spending the episode being a hard-ass company man, suddenly has a change of heart and decides they should keep Erwolf a secret and do top-secret government stuff from the lure, which now resembles the Batcave. This fourth season was never broadcast on UK TV as part of Erwolf's initial run, and even cable reruns have tended to skip it. It was only when ITV repeated the whole series in 1995 that it was seen, and even then it was normally relegated to the graveyard slot. Even the DVD releases over here have tended to ignore the fourth season. The show has recently been remastered on Blu-ray and released as a complete season box set, a complete season that omits season four entirely. The revamp was not a success, despite a bumper by Jan Michael Vincent pleading with the audience to not abandon the show, and after 24 further episodes were made, the series was cancelled. It was enough to give the show a syndicated deal, though, so job done. The next pick is The War of the Worlds. Produced by Paramount as a result of the successful syndication of Star Trek The Next Generation, the first season of War of the Worlds was a B-movie schlockfest full of gore, black humour and cheap Canadian actors. Centred around the Blackwood project, the series followed Harrison Blackwood, Jared Martin and his team, Norton Drake, Highlanders Phil Aiken, Suzanne McCullough, Linda Mason-Green and up 
tight military colonel Paul Ironhorse, played by Predators of Chichevez, as they ran a military-funded operation to prevent a covert group of alien refugees from the 1953 movie from taking over the world. Filled with biblical allusions, Cold War paranoia and goopy FX, the series was a lot of fun. However, it did not perform as well as its sister series, and Paramount ordered sweeping changes for season two. The production staff were let go, and in came Friday the 13th, the series producer Frank Mancuso Jr. One can argue that Friday the 13th, the series, bore as little resemblance to the movie series as War of the Worlds did to H.G. Wells's novel, so on paper, this may have seemed like a good fit. In execution, however, it all went tits up. As with most revamps, the series' titles were done over from scratch. Here's the audio. instead of being set in the present day with its everything is normal, no one knows what's happening because it's cheaper format, now seems to take place without explanation a few years into the future. The world is now a bleak post-apocalyptic environment with little hope and even less humour. New aliens rock up, now called the Morthran, inexplicably changed from the Mortaxians of the first season, execute the first season aliens for their incompetence and set about destroying the Blackwood Project. The Morthran capture Iron Horse and create a clone of him, who then invades Blackwood's base of operation and kills Norton Drake in cold blood. Iron Horse escapes thanks to the aid of new cast member John Kincaid, played by a stiff of starch Adrian Paul, and Iron Horse kills himself to save the rest of the team. The base is destroyed and Blackwood and co. are on the run. As a piece of work in and of itself, and had it been the final ever episode with a more conclusive ending, the second wave would have been gripping TV. Norton's death is particularly affecting, as, as far as he is concerned, he dies at the hands of his friend. Colonel Ironhorse's sacrifice is also well handled, but from that point forth the new producers ditch everything that made the first series enjoyable. Harrison's hatred of guns is dispensed with with a simple shrug from actor Jared Martin as he starts blowing away aliens willy-nilly. They also dispense with all of his character quirks, such as using tuning forks to help him think. The new milieu is gloomy and unappealing, and the new aliens boring. The scripts for the first season knew what the show was and reveled in it. The scripts for the second season are dull. 
the changes alienated the show's fans, failed to bring in new viewers, and the series was cancelled without completing a full season. It was so bad it drove Jared Martin to pretty much quit acting. But Rogers is next up on the list. When actor Gil Gerard gave an interview to Starlog magazine in 1980, decrying the first season of Book Rogers in the 25th century as lousy, the entire writing staff were let go and the second season was retooled with a new premise. Unlike a number of TV revamps, the opening credits had new images, nothing unusual for a new season, and a new voiceover, but the theme remained the same. However, a number of new actors were added to the roll call, and there was one notable omission. Tim O'Connor's Dr. Hewell was jettisoned and left on Earth. In the year 1987, NASA launched the last of America's deep space probes. Aboard this compact starship, a lone astronaut, Captain William Buck Rogers, was to experience cosmic forces beyond all comprehension. In a freak mishap, his life support systems were frozen by temperatures beyond imagination. Ranger 3 was blown out of its planned trajectory into an orbit 1,000 times more vast. An orbit which was to return Buck Rogers to Earth 500 years later. no longer working for the Earth Defence Directorate, protecting the Earth from disco divas like Princess Ardala or hammy guest stars like Jack Palance, and instead he and Wilma have been assigned to the Starship Searcher to look for the lost tribes of Earth that fled after the nuclear holocaust. Time of the Hawk, the series' two-hour opener, was written by Norman Hoodis and sets up the new status quo, which can best be summed up as Battlestar Galactica meets Star Trek. Hewer has been left back on Earth, Wilmer has presumably given up her role as head of Earth's fighter pilots, and we are introduced to doddery Brit Wilfred Hyde White as Dr. Goodfellow, inept Captain Asimov, played by Jay Garner, and an insufferable robot named Crichton. Even Tweaky, shorn of the bling necklace that was Dr. Theopolis, has been given a lube job and is no longer voiced by Mel Blanc. Ironically, Time of the Hawk is one of the better episodes of Book Rogers. It has none of the dated disco chic of the first season. There is some poor acting, but the effects are good, and Tom Christopher makes a good first impression as Hawk. Sadly, the series never really explored the new format and forgot that the disco 70s look was fun and memorable. But Rogers never made it through a full second season before being cancelled. Largely, I put this cancellation down to the fact that they never brought back Princess Adala. Space 1999 was a troubled production in its first season. The pilot episode, Breakaway, overran in both production cost and screen time, and required a lot of editing and reshooting. The premise that Earth's moon was blasted out of orbit on September 13, 1999 by a nuclear explosion of such force that it propelled the moon through galaxies so that it kept running into aliens was riddled with holes, and the episodes themselves tended to involve a lot of whispering beige and things men was not meant to know. 
Despite all this, though, the show boasted exemplary visuals, great sets, and intriguing, if unexplored, ideas. An opinion on the series was divided between those that thought it was pretty good sci-fi television and those that thought it was pap. Jerry Anderson, the producer and creator, was aware of the problems, and in order to secure a second season, he employed Fred Freiberger to produce. As with all good revamps, a new theme tune was employed. Ditching Barry Gray's more sedate theme, Derek Wadsworth composed a more action-orientated theme tune. Here it is. Morph was written by Johnny Byrne and was, in fact, a repurposed script in the season one format. Whilst the plot remained the same, the look, feel, tone and sound of the series are completely different. Dr. Victor Bergman, like Dr. Hewer, has been dropped without explanation, as have other season one recurring characters, and new supporting characters have been added as if by magic. Fred Freeberger apparently told the actors no one would miss them or even notice they were gone. An incredible insult to the audience's intelligence from the man that gave us the third season of Star Trek. The costumes are more colourful as well, with jackets added to offset the beige, and the command centre was altered and brightened. Central characters Commander Koenig and Dr. Helena Russell are now openly lovers as opposed to the cold fish they were in season one, and new additions Tony Anholt as Verdeshi and Catherine Schell as Shapefifter Maya are integrated into the cast well. The Metamorph is actually a pretty good episode. Brian Blessed is in it, and he's... Well, he's Brian Blessed, and he's enormous good fun, and the episode rattles along at a much faster pace than the first season shows. I enjoy Space 1999 a lot, but there are a number of episodes in Season 1 that felt much longer than 50 minutes, so this was appreciated. Space 1999 didn't much change its premise, as it really just tried to lighten up and have a bit more fun, and this wasn't really a bad idea. There are more bug-eyed monsters in the second year, but sadly, instead of finding a balance, the plots generally go to the other extreme. Where Season 1 strive for metaphysical profundity, Season 2 is generally sillier. It's not an outright failure, and a third season may have blended the two approaches together better, but sadly the crew of Moonbase Alpha were no longer considered commercially viable. It was cancelled at the end of the season. Of all the shows picked out of my favourite six, only Alias managed to not only survive its revamp for longer than one season, but, commercially at least, thrive, running for a further three and a half years after the change. Alias starred Jennifer Garner as Sidney Bristow, a young CIA operative who worked for a highly covert branch called SD6. SD6 was so covert, even the CIA didn't acknowledge his existence. And the reason for this was that SD6 was actually a criminal organisation and not affiliated with the CIA at all. Sidney breaks the cardinal rule of SD6, you don't talk about SD6, and her fiancé is killed as a result by evil SD6 mastermind Arvin Sloan, played magnificently by Ron Rifkin. 
Sid, in rage, makes contact with a CIA handler, Michael Vaughan, played by Michael Vartan, who engages Sid's services as a triple agent. One who says she works for the CIA, but actually works for SD6, but really works for the CIA. To make things more complicated, Sid's father, Jack Bristow, a wonderful Victor Garber, is also a triple agent. Created by J.J. Abrams and pitched as What If Felicity Was a Spy, which means nothing to me because I never watched Felicity, Alias was always a moderate success for the network, ABC, who felt the series was a little too confusing. It's hard to disagree with them. For the first season and a half, Bristow would lie and cheat her friends, juggle work, being a spy and her personal life, avoid being caught by Sloane, try to develop a relationship with her dad, fall for her handler and adopt a number of implausible disguises, whilst getting wrapped up in equally implausible plots that started to involve elements of science fiction. The series grew increasingly complicated, with even viewers who watched every single episode struggling to keep up. Phase 1, the 13th episode of Season 2, written by J.J. Abrams, opens with Sidney worrying very little, and then proceeds to dismantle the Alias universe, systematically destroying SD6, exposing Sidney's triple identity, and effectively ending the show. For all intents and purposes, this is the last episode of Alias. If you never watch another one, you'd have been given a complete story. Yes, there's a few plot threads left dangling, but the reason the show existed is over. Sadly, the series continued. Whilst it remained enjoyable, it became steadily more preposterous, as Abrams and his staff did everything they could to make the show more accessible to these mythical larger audience, a larger audience that never really appeared. Unlike every other show on this list, Alias continued past its revamp and arguably became commercially more successful. But the show was never as good, despite remaining fun and entertaining. Those are my picks for six shows that revamped themselves to varying degrees of success. I would very much like to hear your opinions and what you consider to be successful or not successful revamps of television shows. I can be emailed on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. Before we close this particular episode out, I think I will address a couple of emails that I received from lovely listeners. Firstly, Russell Bragg emailed in, Hello Andrew, he says. This was an excellent episode, referring to the two-part Leapers Mr. Kent Quantum Leap retrospective I did with Michael Bailey and Bill Robinson. Russell talks about his history with the show that he watched with his younger brother. It was a while before Russell gave in to Quantum Leap's charms. I guess I thought, if my brother liked it, Russell said, it must not be very good. The first episode I watched was the leap into Lee Harvey Oswald. I'm a big JFK assassination buff, so the subject intrigued me. I have been hooked ever since. An interesting note, my wife Amanda's first viewing of Quantum Leap was also the Oswald episode. I guess we were meant to be. Anyway, Russell's favourite episodes of both season are The Pilot and How the Test Was Won for Season 1, MIA and Blind Faith for Season 2, The Leap Home and Shock Theatre for Season 3, The Leap Back and The Leap for Lisa for Season 4, and The Oswald Two-Parter and Trilogy for Season 5. Russell says, I think I would want the series to come back only if Sammy Joe was the main character looking for Sam. Maybe she could bring Sam back home but get lost in time herself. Of course, they would have to change the end tag on Mirror Image that he didn't get home. Russell has the UK box set, which apparently has all the original music intact. 
and uh, he's very much looking forward to future episodes, hoping uh, that I will cover the greatest American hero or the Incredible Hulk. Well, Michael Bailey and I already covered the Incredible Hulk on an episode of, I think... It was back to the bins, but I could be wrong about that. But The Greatest American Hero is a possibility. Luke Giaconetti also emailed in about the Quantum Leap two-parter, now with 25% more laid-back theme song. Andrew, Luke says, I just wanted to drop you a quick line to say I really enjoyed part one of your Quantum Leap episode with Mike Bailey and Dr. Bill. Quantum Leap was a show which I discovered through reruns on USA and later the Sci-Fi Channel, although I did catch an episode here and there on NBC. I specifically remember seeing the one where Sam leaps into the chimpanzee while on vacation in Florida as a kid, but most of my memories are from cable reruns. One specific night of Quantum Leap, which stands out in my mind, was catching the episode where Sam leaps into himself as a young boy, when his older brother is getting ready to ship off to Vietnam. Followed immediately by the next episode, where Sam leaps into a member of his brother's platoon. The second episode started at 11pm and I really should have been asleep as I had school the next day, but I watched it on the sly. These episodes stuck out to me because it really seemed like the Vietnam War, more than any other of the historical periods Sam leapt to, was the driving force behind a lot of the character personas. I know now that those are the first two episodes of season three, but I had no idea at the time. Quantum Leap holds another distinction for me as it is one of the very few science fiction shows my wife likes. Being a fan of history, the show has obvious appeals to a non-science fiction fan, as you guys mentioned on the show. One last thing, I always thought that the writers and producers of Star Trek Enterprise missed a great in-joke by not having Captain Archer end up in some insane situation as a cliffhanger in deadpan. Oh boy, the one with the aliens in World War II German uniforms would have been perfect. May the next leap be the leak home. Leap home, sorry, Luke. Sick Chris Franklin emailed in also about the Quantum Leap episode. Hello Andrew, Dr. Bill and Mike B. I thoroughly enjoyed your Quantum Leap retrospective two-parter. I got in on the ground floor of the show when it erred, but admit to missing episodes and eventually falling off. I was in high school and homework, real work and dating took its toll. I did, however, make a point to watch the finale. I haven't seen it in many years, maybe since the first airing, so my hypotheses may be full of holes, but I got the impression that Sam was more or less an angel and had died in the experiment and God was his boss, leaping in from person to person, fixing things. That's what I took away from it as 18 or however old I was when it ended, and I recall that my mother got that out of it as well, but I should revisit this episode and the series in general. Looking forward to any and all palaces in the future. Well, that's certainly... A good interpretation of the ending. I think uh, it leaving it open is an exceptional way of encouraging people to have their own interpretation of it. Um, like we said in the show, I felt it was a little bit baffling. But um, it was good. That, as a whole, the series is well worth watching. Starts on the sci- It's just started a rerun on the Sci-Fi Channel in the UK. So if you're in the UK, you can catch up with it. Matt Lax has also emailed in about Quantum Leap, a show which has all the elements I love, says Mark, in time travel, great characterization, terrific acting, and continuity that can make your head spin. What seemed like a breezy, fun sci-fi fantasy in the beginning turned into a very complex character study. With each leap, we learned more about Sam and Al's lives and personalities. There are some moments that at times can put a tear in your eye, make you laugh, or get you involved in the issues of the episode. The idea of the evil leaper was very intriguing, but it didn't seem to have enough time to develop. It would have been nice to see exactly where they came from, and were they truly responsible for wronging everything Sam 
Sam had put right. Still, I enjoyed these episodes and loved the concept of Sam and Al having their own arch-nemesis. I, for one, would love to see some update of the show, whether it involves Sam's daughter or maybe even Al's daughter trying to find Sam. But despite the head-scratching ending, I think Bellasario told the story he wanted to tell. And I'm happy with the great episodes we have. Thanks, Andy, for the podcast and analysis of one of my favourite series. Keep up the good work, and now I'm going to listen to the latest episode of Hey Kids Comics, your pal, Matt Lax. Well, I encourage everyone to go and listen to every episode of Hey Kids Comics. Why would you not do that? Anyway, that wraps it up for this week. I hope you enjoyed this little episode. I need to thank my good pal, Scott Allison, for helping me round up some of the episodes I needed to be able to watch them again for this show. I also wish to thank everybody who emails in. There'll be another palace along uh, whenever I get around to doing it. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you again for listening. Goodbye.